Welcome. It's August 10th, 2021, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and James White Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. I'm Russell Berman, Director of the Working Group. The Working Group publishes regular commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org caravan. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please subscribe by going to hoover.org, clicking on publications, and go to podcasts. Today I'm speaking with Paul Wood, who resides in Beirut, although I've reached him today in the UK. Paul was a BBC foreign correspondent for 25 years and is now a columnist for The Spectator magazine in London. He's reported from a wide range of locations across the broad Middle East, Afghanistan, Croatia, Bosnia, Macedonia, Chechnya, Libya, Algeria, and Sudan, including Darfur. He covered the invasion of Iraq from Baghdad in 2003 and the fighting in the civil war in Syria from Homs in 2012. His reporting has won him multiple awards. Today we'll focus on Lebanon, a small country caught up in some very large crises. Last week, on August 4th, they marked the one-year anniversary of the explosion in Beirut Harbor that devastated large parts of the city and that exacerbated the problems of an already fragile economy. Add to that widespread corruption in the ruling elite and the threat of a return to the sectarianism of the civil war, the potential of fighting between Shia, Sunni, and Christian militia, and all that in the shadow of Hezbollah. Paul, welcome to the Caravan Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here, Russell. Thanks for this conversation. So uh, let's start by trying to make sense of the Lebanese situation by looking at the economy. What's happened to the Lebanese pound? Why? And how are people coping? Well, the, what's happened is that it's lost 90, 95% of its value over the past 18 months. Uh, the why comes down to greed, dishonesty, and cowardice. Greed, um, because over a very long period of time, everybody in the world, every economist was telling Lebanon, your currency is overvalued. But this was a policy that was universally popular from the richest to the poorest because it made people feel more wealthy than they were. If you're middle class, you bought a new German car every year, had an Ethiopian maid. If you were poorer, you got a flat screen TV. And nobody, nobody questioned what was uh, underpinning this um, very high valuation, 1,500 Lebanese lira to the dollar. That's still the official rate, 22, 23,000 on the street because Lebanon doesn't really make anything. It doesn't really export anything. And what was keeping it afloat was Lebanese people abroad. In 2008, there was a worldwide financial crisis and a lot of Lebanese abroad started getting nervous about Western banks and repatriating their dollars to Lebanon. Then uh, you had um, countries like Syria with a very rich elite and nowhere to park its money, putting their money there. Uh, and this went on for many years. And the way it would work is that the central bank would give um, subsidiary banks very high interest rates in dollars. They would pass those interest rates on to dollar depositors. And it was a dollarized economy, as the economists call it. Um, but they would convert the dollars immediately into Lebanese pounds, pay these high interest rates in Lebanese pounds. And people were always happy with that because you could convert, the currency was pegged, you could convert right back. This worked as long as Lebanese abroad kept sending dollars in. But first you had the Syrian civil war and a lot of Syrians pulled their money out. Then you had worries about security in Lebanon. 
then you had a worldwide economic downturn, then you had the pandemic, and then you had a, an explosion at the port of Beirut, which devastated large parts of the capital, and there were no longer any dollars coming in. And then people noticed um, that these interest rates really were a bit incredible. In the last days of this, um, people were being rung up, rich Lebanese, and offered 25% interest rates. I know a billionaire who says he was offered 35% interest rates to bring $2 billion back to Lebanon. Of course, this was a Ponzi scheme. It couldn't go on. People realized this, and there was a rush on the banks. The shutters came down, and people were told, uh, you, you can't have your money back. Um, they, they lost their money. And the dishonesty in this was in these high interest rates, which everybody knew couldn't be sustained. But the bankers were paying themselves bonuses in the in the tens of millions of dollars, people were getting this very high return. Um, people colluded in this dishonesty. Finally, the cowardice comes in with, um, everybody knows what Lebanon has to do, it has to revalue, it has to bring some financial rigor back. But the politicians are too afraid to do this. As one um, senior banker told me, they know they will literally be killed uh, if they take these very difficult, tough economic steps. They will be hanging from the lampposts in downtown Beirut. So Lebanon muddles on, and one of the ways, the ways it's muddling on is that the government is subsidising imports such as food and fuel with the very last bits of the foreign currency that they have, the very last of the reserves. And eventually, I think, they'll get down to the gold reserves. And again, the government is doing that because it's too afraid to take the very tough measures that need to be taken, and literally afraid for their lives, I think, the whole political class. So ordinary Lebanese have seen prices uh, quintuple uh, on average. They've seen their wages double, but that hasn't kept up with price rises. And uh, taking the example of the doorman on our building, he used to get, he's a Syrian refugee, he used to get paid about $1,000 a year. But the people who own the building have taken advantage of the very bad situation, the large numbers of jobless, and he earns uh, the equivalent of about $100 a month now. Many, many people are in that similar situation. And what's striking to me is how the middle classes, who were always untouched by the comings and goings of the past 10 years, are now suddenly finding their incomes gutted and can see um, people foraging through the bins at the end of our road. Some of them are quite well dressed. Uh, I saw a long line of BMWs and Range Rovers outside a church the other day, and I thought, oh, maybe that's a, a christening or a smart wedding. But I passed by and I saw they were handing out uh, packets of pasta and some very unpleasant, cheap-looking cooking oil. Uh, so people are on the breadline, literally. A lot of Lebanese are not eating meat anymore. Uh, you can't get medicines anymore. You can't get fuel. Partly that's because um, the, the hard currency reserves are dwindling to, to import that and to subsidise it. And partly because the, uh, the price controls that there are mean that it's very cheap to buy things like fuel and medicines in Lebanon. And so criminal gangs are exporting it. And you can buy heart medicine, for instance, that's unobtainable in Beirut, is popping up in markets in the Congo still with the Lebanese uh, pharmacy stickers on it. Similarly with fuel. Fuel comes in, it's subject to price control, it's bought with the last of the hard currency, and then criminal gangs exported again out through Syria, and people suspect that Hezbollah might be involved in that. So as the Lebanese president said, the country is going to hell, and certainly that's what people feel in Lebanon. So at the core of the political economy is a reliance on the remaining reserves and potentially the gold as well, but at a certain point this is just going to run out. There's a, there's a ticking time bomb here, is there not? Hasn't quite run out yet, or but 
already they are choking off imports of certain certain medicines, for instance, you cannot find. It's absolutely a ticking time bomb. And this is one of the reasons I think why it's so difficult for Lebanon to form a new government. Nobody wants to take these tough decisions, certainly not the caretaker government that's been there since the explosion at the port. And I imagine any new government is going to have a very difficult time. But the IMF is going to have to come in and do what it does to countries suffering hyperinflation, or I think the technical definition of Lebanon is near hyperinflation. Trouble is for Lebanese, they, they don't have the political coherence and the political will and the unity of purpose to do the kind of very tough things the IMF is going to demand they do, even over a period of months, let alone, I think it took Argentina 10 years to get back to some kind of um, financial sanity. Um, often the, the country simply looks ungovernable, I'm afraid. Well, th this brings us really to the political aspect to it. In a, in a situation, in a terrible situation like this, one ex would expect the political leadership to address the, the crisis, but that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, uh, are they just, do they just see it as um, unresolvable? Lebanon's had no government ever since the port explosion. It's had a caretaker government. For 10 months, um, the, uh, the, the Sunni leadership tried to form a government and was blocked by President Aoun, who's a Christian leader uh, who's in alliance with Hezbollah. And the issue uh, there was uh, over cabinet places. Uh, discussions in Lebanon, and I think we're going to just talk about this in more detail later, but they always come back to Hezbollah, what Hezbollah wants, the power it exerts. It always seems very happy uh, to exert power from behind the scenes. And uh, the way it does that at the moment is through the Lebanese president, Michel Aoun, whose Christian party is in alliance with them. Uh, after 10 months, Saad Hariri, the, the leader of the Sunni political party here, the future movement, gave up, shrugged his shoulders and walked away and said, like, I, I can't do this. He was replaced uh, by Najib Makita, who um, seems to have support both of the Sunnis and Hezbollah, which looks good. But Lebanese are, are somewhat in despair at this development. He's been prime minister twice before. A bit like Mr. Hariri, um, he's very rich. He's a billionaire. And a lot of his um, money comes from banking. And people look at the insolvent banking system and feel that that results not just from incompetence, but from corruption as well. And they, they don't like their leaders to be associated with that. And Mr. Makita, too, was accused by the Lebanese prosecutor a couple of years ago of corruption, which is not an unusual allegation to be levelled in Lebanon. He denies it, says it's a political allegation. But he said one very true thing when, when he was asked to start trying to form a government, which is that he didn't have a magic wand to wave, and it would depend a lot depend on a lot of other people coming in to help him. And again, I'm not sure that Lebanon has the unity of purpose to do that, and certainly the political class don't. They've been trying for 18 months to form a government and not getting anywhere. Um, could you go into a little bit more detail about why Aoun blocked the um, Hariri efforts to form a government, and will it, the same problems come up now with Mikati? Well, it's all about Hezbollah's influence. Uh, the, the ostensible issue, the, formally speaking, it was over who had the power to nominate ministers. Hariri said, I'm, I'm going to be prime minister, that's got to be me. Aoun, uh, Aoun, in a move which a lot of people saw as extending the power of the presidency, said, no, it has to be me. Um, it's about who runs the country. Hezbollah has traditionally taken a couple of ministries uh, and has been quite happy to exert its influence through those ministries and through the president. It all came down to who's going to have the interior ministry, who's going to have the ministry which controls trade, uh, classic questions of political power. 
Lebanon is hamstrung by the Taif Agreement, which was um, made for very good reasons of bringing peace to the country. It's what the political scientists call consociational democracy. Everybody has a veto. No religious group or sectarian group feels that its interests um, are going to be jeopardized. The uh, Speaker of the Parliament has to be a Shia. Uh, the Prime Minister has to be a Sunni, the leader of the army has to be a Christian, the president has to be a Christian. Things are divided up in this way, but it does uh, mean that the system is very sclerotic. Nobody can be fired, for instance. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's from a very famous, very rich Lebanese family, owns family owns several big businesses. And he was uh, almost crying tears of frustration because he couldn't get work permits for the foreign staff that worked in his business because uh, the minister who signed these permits kept asking for bribes, uh, but the particular business uh, that this family owned, which needed the permits, was in partnership with a big international organization who couldn't pay bribes. So their, their work permits were piling up. This was when Sartre really was prime minister. Uh, my friend was powerful enough to go to Hariri directly and Hariri said, this is nonsense, signed the work permits himself. But six weeks later, they were back to the work permits um, resting on the, on the relevant minister's desk. And the reason for that is this minister couldn't be fired. He couldn't be fired because there'd been a long negotiation to put him in the job in the first place. He represented a particular sectarian interest, a particular party, and had a whole patronage network behind him. That problem is multiplied across the entire Lebanese system. It is not capable of responding um, to people's democratic wishes at the ballot box and it's nobody's accountable nobody has been fired or resigned for the collapse of the banks Lebanon used to be known as the Switzerland of the Middle East with banking services um, famous in the Arab world now the banks are insolvent Not, no head of a bank has resigned no politicians resigned and that part that also is part of the problem of why problems can't be fixed in Lebanon so patronage, uh, corruption, and no accountability against the backdrop of the uh, sectarian division of, uh, of power, uh, which contributes to the inability to fire people. Um, Aoun represents the, the Christian community, but he's in an um, effective alliance with Hezbollah. What, is, that, is that his personal choice, or is there some interest shared between the, the Christians and Hezbollah? Christians are in a very precarious position in Lebanon. Remember, this was a country whose borders were drawn by the French to make it a Christian majority country. I was having lunch the other day with um, a, a leading Christian politician. He was actually one of the people who helped negotiate uh, at, at TAIF, the agreement under which Lebanon is run today. His private estimate was that Christians were now 15% of the population, down from, from a small majority when the country was formed. Of course, nobody knows for certain because nobody will do a proper census of Lebanon. It would be too explosive. It might be the cause of another civil war. But he thought that 15% were left. And he told me he dri drives around Ashrafir at night. Ashrafir is the main Christian neighborhood and all the lights are out. You can see that for yourself. Um, his solution to this uh, was, uh, I think, unrealistic. 
he wanted Lebanon to be cantonized, to have a, a series of sort of ink-blot settlements of Christians, which he felt the international community would guarantee with a new peacekeeping force. This, of course, is complete fantasy. The international community would never agree to that, especially uh, when everybody's dealing with their own crisis with the coronavirus. But these are the kinds of conversations which are ha being had among Christian politicians. So I think Aoun is being very pragmatic pragmatic in partnering. He's either got a partner with the Sunnis or with the Shia, and he's chosen Hezbollah. He doesn't speak for the whole Christian community, by the way. There is a, a group called the Lebanese Forces, a former militia, now a political party, run by a man called Samir Jaja, who's, who's a very interesting personality in Lebanese politics. Um, he's decided uh, not to be part of that arrangement. Uh, he's sitting on the sidelines. And it's interesting that in an interview with the Financial Times earlier this year, he said, you know, we, we've got to, he, he said, I'm not doing this now. We've got to plan ahead for the day that the state falls apart and we have to defend ourselves. And he said that he could convert his, his political party back into a militia pretty quickly in that circumstance. Okay, well, let's let, let let's address the elephant in the room. Um, Hezbollah. Uh, what's uh, how does Hezbollah factor into this? Does, is it waiting for the state to collapse so it can take over, or is it happy to have the 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 state simply hamstrung? Well, Hezbollah, of course, is the major power in Lebanon. They they almost run the whole table, but but not quite. They're the biggest single power, and as as is often said, they are a state within a state. They have their own uh, military, um, and once when the government tried to, to do something as innocuous as shut down Hezbollah's own telephone system, which was being used as um, something which would be employed if ever there was another war with Israel as a military system. And when they tried to remove the head of customs at the airport, which, which Hezbollah controls, Hezbollah sent troops into the center of Beirut, and it looked as if uh, they would drive the politicians threatening their power from their offices and from their homes. So, but Hezbollah is quite happy, I think, running itself at one remove from uh, being the Lebanese government itself. They have influence over the president. They have influence in a number of ministries. They control a portion of the border and are able to import and export what they want without customs duties. In fact, there's a formal mechanism for this. They, they actually can use um, a formal mechanism not to be charged any customs duties on things they import. And if they were the government, they'd be in charge of the whole mess. And Lebanon could expect to be further sanctioned by the US and others if Lebanon was the government. And if there was a war with Israel, much more would be bombed, the Lebanese would, would suffer in a much greater way. So I think Hezbollah seems to be quite happy with the current situation. Whether most Lebanese are quite happy with that, there's a substantial um, semi-secular sheer opinion which, which would like to reduce Hezbollah's influence, but is um, literally afraid to speak out. Uh, a few months ago, an activist called Lockman Slim was murdered. Hezbollah denies they did it, but everybody assumes they did. Political assassination is a tool they've used before. Um, so yes, I think they're quite happy sitting on the sidelines, pulling the strings, exercising influence. Um, they don't need to be the government of Lebanon. Yeah. Well, I'll add on this. Uh, when I was in Beirut recently speaking with, um, with individuals who were critical of Hezbollah, if we were in a public place, they would lower their voices when they were making this criticism. They did not want to be heard. Um, Nonetheless, uh, August 4th, the big demonstrations on the anniversary of the, uh, the, the explosion, I saw images of, of signs calling for uh, Hezbollah to leave, for Iran to leave. Uh, 
Talk about the opposition to Hezbollah some more, please. Well, a lot of um, Lebanese do think that essentially they're under Iranian occupation. It all depends on how much control you think Iran exercises over Hezbollah. And we were at a, a dinner party uh, where one of the country's leading experts on Hezbollah um, was speaking, and he said, you've got to look at the organizational chart. It's a pyramid, and at the top is Iran's supreme leader. There was no question in his mind that Hezbollah was taking orders directly from Tehran. Um, people are afraid to speak out. Uh, there have been assassinations. You know as a reporter that if you go into uh, South Beirut, which is controlled by Hezbollah, and you get out a TV camera or a microphone, 30 seconds, and I'm not exaggerating, you will be surrounded by people, either Hezbollah operatives or people who will detain you until Hezbollah get there, and, and you will be arrested by them. They, they are their own state in, in parts of the country. Uh, so, so this is what Lebanese are dealing with. Um, if the country is going to have any kind of normal future, they have to deal with Hezbollah, but, but Hezbollah speaks for so many Shia and has the backing of Iran that I think it is impossible to dislodge. And I, I know that outside commentators always say, well, of course, we have to disarm Hezbollah. That's a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. It is politically impossible under any scenario. Maybe um, let's put a fine point in it. Can we can we distinguish between understanding Hezbollah as the um, religious political organization that represents the interests of many Lebanese Shia, so and a genuinely indigenous movement, or an Iranian proxy that is really acting on the behest of Tehran, uh, or are both of those true? They're both true, and uh, you, you can look at the two faces of Hezbollah and decide to deal with one face and not the other. And that's exactly what Emmanuel Macron did when after the Beirut port explosion, he said uh, to all the Lebanese political parties, for goodness sake, for the good of the country, get a caretaker government, get a technocratic government and fix these problems. And he said then that he was quite prepared for Hezbollah to take part in that, even though along with the United States, the EU designates uh, much of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. And it does carry out terrorist acts uh, around the world. Um, the Israelis can give you a big fat file on that. And it's also identified by the US government as a big uh, narcotics trafficker. Uh, the US DEA estimates that 10% of Hezbollah's income comes from narcotics trafficking. They deal with, allegedly deal with the cartels in Latin America and bring a lot of cocaine into Europe and traffic a lot of heroin across Iran. Um, so, all of that is true, and yet if you're a poor Shia in the suburbs of Beirut, these are the people who feed your family, these are the people who get you medical treatment. During the coronavirus pandemic, Hezbollah was very proudly showing off its medical treatment facilities for people with coronavirus. All of that is true, and I don't know how you split those two things, because the essence of Hezbollah, as they would say, is resistance, resistance to Israeli occupation. And of course, they believe the Israeli occupation didn't end when Israel left Lebanon, it continues with um, Israel's uh, very existence. Um, they call themselves the resistance. Uh, a lot of Lebanese, but very quietly, as you say, call them the occupation. And it's very difficult to see how that will change. It's one of the reasons why Lebanon's friends despair a little bit about Lebanon's future. Okay, well, it's a, it's a multifaceted organization. It's a social service organization for the poor Shia. It's a proxy for Iran. And as you pointed out, it's also an international criminal organization dealing in drugs. Uh, there have been a couple of incidents recently of um, 
what, popular resistance, is that right word, to, to Hezbollah? I'm thinking about the events in Khalde, uh, but also an altercation involving Druze and Hezbollah. Could you talk about those events, please? Both of those are very re revealing about Hezbollah and about Lebanon. First of all, Haldi. There was Haldi is a place where there are both Sunni and Shia in almost equal numbers, I think. And there's been a long history of tension between those two communities. Um, a couple of weekends ago, there was an ambush on a uh, a funeral in Haldi, and several people were killed. Several Shia were killed. Um, a lot of people thought, "Oh, is this the start?" of sectarian civil war. It's always the question that all Lebanese ask themselves, uh, among themselves and to foreigners, is this the start of the next civil war? The story in Haldi was that a year ago, uh, there'd been essentially a clan dispute, one clan being Shia, another clan being Sunni. Uh, and uh, a, a Shia man had shot and killed a 15-year-old um, boy belonging to a Sunni clan. Uh, the allegation is, and this is all, all what's being said on the street, if you like, I've got no, no proof of this, but the allegation is that this man was not arrested because he was protected by Hezbollah. Fast forward a year, and there's mounting resentment among the Sunni clan, which lost the 15-year-old boy. They attack a wedding party and kill the uh, Hezbollah man accused of murdering the 15-year-old boy. It was his funeral which was attacked in Haldi. What happened very quickly was that the army flooded the streets and the army is um, liked and trusted by Lebanese of all sorts to an extraordinary degree because I think they regard it as uh, the only last and best hope if there is going to be another civil war in Lebanon. I think myself that if, if serious fighting started between Hezbollah and others, between Sunni and Shias, the army would crumble very quickly, but it certainly did its job in Halde and cleared people off the streets uh, and did it, by the way, when, it, when it's under tremendous pressure, you know, the, the ordinary soldiers are getting paid almost nothing now, the same as everybody else. What happened in the South was slightly different. Uh, there has been a lot of rocket fire between uh, Hezbollah and Israel uh, over the past few days. Actually, this started a couple of weeks ago with what seems to have been a rogue Palestinian or Palestinian element firing rockets at Israel and the Israeli military seemed at, at the start of this remarkably relaxed, saying, you know, Hezbollah has got enough on its plate at the moment. It's exhausted after Syria, which is true. They lost a lot of people there. It is now dealing with the financial crisis, being hit as hard as anybody else. Uh, we don't think this is Hezbollah. Then, unfortunately, a week later, there was a barrage of rockets, which very definitely was Hezbollah. And you have to wonder, again, why they were doing that. Don't they have enough to worry about? Um, I think you can always understand Hezbollah in terms of what Iran wants at any one particular time. And Iran has been skirmishing essentially uh, with Israel and with, with other international actors in the Persian Gulf, probably needs to relieve some of the pressure there. May have the long-term objective of trying to get a deal in the nuclear talks because the Iranian leadership is under tremendous pressure at the moment. You're seeing street demonstrations in Iran they need money to buy off the demonstrators. Where can they get that money from the billions which would be freed with a nuclear deal? How do they get a nuclear deal? Well, they start rushing towards getting enriched uranium. The Israelis say they're 10 weeks away from getting enriched uranium, which would contribute to a nuclear weapon. Uh, and they cause trouble elsewhere. Uh, they put the pressure on the Biden administration to get a deal. So in that context, Hezbollah fires rockets into Israel. But what was interesting, as you say, was that 
that in one of those uh, incidents, Drew's villagers raced up to the rocket launcher that some Hezbollah men were using and said, you've got to stop that. The Israelis will fire back, which they did. The Israelis used huge artillery pieces to fire back. And the Drew said, not in our village, you'll cause deaths here. So these kind of tensions are happening all the time. And what it tells you is that, that uh, first of all, with Hezbollah, always ask what Iran wants in this situation. Secondly, when it comes to the consequences of that on the ground in Lebanon, always look to the sectarian element. Um, violence starts in one way, but it may end up in a sectarian way. And that is always the risk in Lebanon. Certainly that's what Lebanese feel. So beyond Iran, are there other external actors, the Gulf states, Turkey, Syria, Russia? What about the roles of the EU and the US? Well, the, the US uh, plays a crucial role. Uh, I know that um, the US ambassador was very closely involved in the negotiations between Lebanon and Israel on whether a gas field would be exploited, a gas field which might just save Lebanon's financial system. Fortunately, there, there was no agreement. Uh, I know that other EU diplomats, the French president I mentioned was one, but, but just EU ambassadors from individual countries are often involved in behind the scenes negotiations, trying to get the Lebanese to, to, to get themselves a government which works. That happens all the time. And of course, European money and American money and, and European and American aid is very important for Lebanon, especially now. Syria is the country next door and is, uh, was the occupying power for many years still has enormous influence here. Um, my girlfriend did a reporting trip, she, she's a correspondent too, to Syria a few years back. Uh, she was invited personally by uh, somebody close to the Syrian president. Uh, they did not like the coverage. I think any honest coverage on the Syrian regime side is going to upset them somehow. She got a call from um, the, it was a militia leader who had been showing around on the Syrian president's behalf and said, he said to her, you know, you're back in Beirut now, but we can kill you in Beirut just as easily as we could have killed you in Damascus. And he was only speaking the truth there. Um, the Syrian shadow falls very long over Lebanon. Uh, they were responsible for murdering the Lebanese prime minister in 2005. And, and they're busy now. It's Hezbollah helping the Syrian regime to survive rather than the Syrian regime helping Hezbollah to survive. But nobody doubts that they could be decisive again in Lebanon's future. And of course, uh, the Russians, the Saudis, uh, the Turks to a lesser extent, uh, all of them meddle in Lebanon from time to time. This is Lebanon's curse to be a small country uh, which is at the crossroads of different religions and different civilizations and different countries' interests. You talked a moment ago about the, um, uh, the, the exchange of fire with Israel. Is there the chance of just sliding into another war? Oh, always. Let's not forget that, that a war started in 2006, uh, essentially by accident, but, but it suddenly spirals out of control. Um, I think there is restraint on both sides at the moment, the two sides being Hezbollah and Israel. Israel is very conscious that there are literally according to Israeli intelligence estimates anyway, 150,000 missiles that Hezbollah could fire into Israel. And these are not the unguided katushas of 2006, which will fall harmlessly onto open ground. These are not some mortars aimed by eye. These are very sophisticated weapon systems, long range. Tel Aviv could be hit. Uh, parts of Jerusalem could be hit if Hezbollah wanted to risk that. 
uh, and they would find their targets. There would be a very high cost to a conflict this time. The Israeli military and political class is always very conscious that they can only lose one war. The, the first war they lose will be the last. Hezbollah too seems to be reluctant to enter a conflict. It suffered greatly uh, in the Syrian civil war. Uh, they recruited a lot of, of fresh new people and you drive through Shia areas um, in the Bekar Valley and you just see every lamppost has got a martyr poster on it. I, I think the Lebanese Hezbollah leadership themselves feel under pressure from their own supporters not to shed blood needlessly. But as we were just saying earlier in this discussion, it really comes back to what Iran wants. And does Iran want a conflict with Israel? And that, I think, is, is part of the question of whether Israel, fearing that the Iranians will get a nuclear bomb, will try some kind of preemptive strike. Uh, I, I've talked to senior Israeli military figures about this. Uh, a, a strike on Iran would not be a small thing, and it might not even succeed. Instead, what you've had is an undeclared war over the past couple of years with repeated special forces raids, repeated clandestine activity. Uh, from the Israeli point of view, a very successful process of assassination, taking out the head of the program to get an Iranian bomb, uh, the supposed head, because the Iranians always deny they're doing this. But it, but it apparently hasn't stopped them from getting to a point where they have got, I think, 10 times the amount of uranium they're supposed to have, much more enriched uranium, uranium than uh, they're supposed to have, and possibly months uh, or a year away from getting a nuclear weapon in the assessment of a lot of Western intelligence agencies. What will the Israelis do then? Will they think they have to attack? If they do, you can almost guarantee that Iran will use Hezbollah and there will be a regional war. Okay, well, let's return to Hezbollah and, uh, well, to Lebanese politics, where there are elections coming up next year. Um, there are various opposition figures who are mobilizing. Um, who is this opposition, and is there any impact, hope that it could have an impact on the political system? I think the answer is probably no. Whoever gets put up as a new face often isn't really that much of a new face. And this is because the Lebanese system is, first of all, based on sectarianism and religion, uh, as we were discussing, and on patronage. And uh, again, at, at the uh, very interesting dinner party that we both attended, there was uh, a, uh, a woman MP, an independent, uh, very um, sensible uh, person who I think has got no chance of, of any real power in Lebanon, but she was describing how in regional elections, not the national elections next year, neighbours of hers in a Christian village were already being approached by the, by the local politicians with an offer to fix the roof of their house. It's just for a regional election. So typically in the run-up to an election, politicians will come out. They, they won't necessarily bribe people to vote a certain way, but they'll, they'll fix their roof, they'll buy them a new washing machine, maybe a new television. Uh, they'll get somebody a job. There's a ministry in, in Lebanon, I think it's the Labour ministry, which is notorious. Everybody's somebody's cousin, everybody's somebody's brother. Um, whenever they offer to, to do something for you, they say, I'll just call my cousin. So from top to bottom in, in Lebanon, from, from the, the, when the first votes are cast to, to when people are elected, everything's about patronage and what people can do for you. It's very hard to break that system open. And I know that some academics, for instance, at AUB, American University in Beirut, have been trying to organize the next generation of voters into um, secular groupings, not even political parties, you'd call them, trying to break that, that monopoly. That's what happened in 2019 when people took to the streets. You got briefly 
Sunnis and Christians coming together, shedding the old political labels, calling for a new system in Lebanon, because that's what, what it will take. People have got to stop voting along sectarian lines. They've got to stop voting for politicians who promise to mend their roofs. But those demonstrations melted away in the economic crisis and after the, the blast in the port. And the prime minister forced to step down in 2019 was none other than Saad Hariri, who was back the last 10 months negotiating to be prime minister again. You get the same faces year after year. And again, this is what causes a lot of Lebanese to despair that things will ever change here. It's very difficult to change the system. And what a paradoxical country. Um, we talked earlier about this ticking time bomb. Sooner or later, those reserves are going to be gone. Um, on the other hand, there's this endemic culture of corruption and immobility on the political level. Um, we're coming to the end of our discussion, but where's the future? Uh, you're a keen observer of the Lebanese scene. Uh, is, there a, um, is there any reason for hope? Is there any path forward? The Lebanese are tough. They've been through civil war. Uh, they've been through war with Israel. They always talk about resilience. They're, they're talking about it rather bitterly now. You, I, I know you're a, a student of Arabic. You may have heard them talking about resilience with the emphasis on the zil, which means humiliation in, in colloquial mm -hmm. Lebanese mm -hmm. Arabic. Um, I think the Lebanese people will survive. They'll go back to their villages. Uh, they will get food off their farms. Uh, they will get a little bit of money from abroad. Whether the Lebanese state survives is another matter. You know, the head of the Lebanese army uh, is appealing, begging international donors for food to feed his soldiers. Soldiers on active duty have not had meat in their rations for a year. Even Egypt has sent plain loads of aid. And for Lebanese, that is deeply humiliating because Egyptians were the guys that you got to do your garden or pump your gas, and they've all gone home now because there's no more money left to pay them. But, but now for Egypt to be sending aid, that's really telling Lebanese, in their view, how far they have fallen. Um, so the state itself could fall apart. The army could just decide it's not being paid enough. Uh, I think the country will survive and the people will survive, but, but it might be ungovernable for the next few years. Ungovernable. Um, that sounds like Lebanon approaches the status of failed state unless it breaks up into statelets, as you suggested earlier. Uh, Paul, thank you for the conversation. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot about this troubled country. Uh, we wish it the best. Listeners can follow Hoover's working group on the Middle East and the Islamic world at hoover.org slash caravan. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter at hooverinst, I-N-S-T. And I'm Russell Berman on Twitter at Russell Berman SF. Please listen to the Caravan podcast later this month when my Caravan colleague Cole Bunzel will return. I'll be back in about a month, and I hope you'll be listening in. Thanks. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.